RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Wednesday morning on Reality Check Radio, time to check in with our favorite doctor, Dr. Glenn Davies of Reversal NZ in Taupo, and it's our Health Hacks program, very popular now. And Glenn, good to see you. How are you doing? It's really good to see Paul, and uh, you're looking... um bright um and and recovered i think unlike the last time we saw we saw each other where you said to me i think you need to get some sleep paul and that was <laughs> yeah. over the over the camera and it wasn't even live you know person to person and you were no, you're right. looking you're looking great and bright you so. were right you were bang on but you should know these things from all the experience you have you intuit the stuff now right exactly. i'm giving off little signs i don't even know i'm giving off Probably having uh, eyebrows half closed is not a is a bit of a giveaway. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So last week, vitamin D. We'll get to the feedback on that. Any questions? Let's get the old disclaimer out of the way first, shall we? Yeah, Paul. I I thought we needed to do a disclaimer because what we're doing is we're really discussing topics which help people to improve their health. And if we use uh, David Beaumont's definition of health. Health is the ability to adapt and to self-manage in the face of life's challenges. So having information and thinking about these important aspects of health is, is an important aspect of health. That's what we're doing here. But it's really important to point out we're not giving individual uh, health advice, and it's still important that people talk to their healthcare professional uh, if they're going to do you know, some aspect of this, which is a little bit more involved. So oh, Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's out there. No confusion there. I thought you would probably get some feedback, some incomings, emails and texts, mainly emails after we, or you talked, and I was listening intently about vitamin D. Seems to be a lot of interest in vitamin D and what you were saying. So, um, who have you heard from and what are they asking and what are your answers? Yeah, so um, so the first one I wanted to cover, it came as a text, so we couldn't respond um, directly to it. Uh, but the question was, what levels of vitamin D should we be looking at in the blood? And are the laboratory levels an indication of sort of a minimum or an optimal? Um, and the answer to that is, what happens when you look at a laboratory range? They take, say, let's say 100 people and they lay that standard bell curve over top of those 100 people. And if you're sort of two or three standard deviations from the mean, you'll either be abnormally high or abnormally low. That's kind of how it's done. But what happens if the entire population is deficient? You know, that's not going to be reflected by a normal range. So the question was a fantastic one. You know, what, what, what does the normal range represent? It represents where you sit in the population and it assumes that the population is normal. And I don't think that's true for vitamin D because from what I've seen, a majority of the population are vitamin D deficient. So that normal range of 50 to 150, and I think it's nanomoles per litre, is probably going to underrepresent the optimal range. I like people to be more like 100 to 200 on that range, so the top of that normal range. And that way, I think you're looking more at optimal range. And just for um, just for a comparison, when you look at selenium, and we know that New Zealand soils are selenium deficient, they talk about a normal range, a laboratory normal range, which is something like. I think if I remember this correctly, it's 0.9 to point to 1.4. And then underneath it, it talks about an optimal range of 1.6 to 1.9. So the normal range doesn't even approach the optimal range. You know, and I think that's what we're seeing with vitamin D. So to answer the um, question, I think we need to be at the top end of that um, blood range for vitamin D. So that was the first and most excellent question. And then the other one, I'm going to say thanks to Alan, but I'm, I'm not sure if I really mean that because this took me a hell of a lot of research to answer this question. It was a really important one. So if you recall to last week, we said, when you take a vitamin D supplement, 
you also need to take vitamin K2. That's because what vitamin D does is it moves the calcium from the blood into the tissues. If you add vitamin K2, it will move it into the bones where we want it to be. If you don't, it can potentially move it into tissues such as tendons and soft tissues, but particularly into the arteries, supplying blood to the heart, which is definitely what you don't want. And he asked me, when we're talking about these much higher doses of um, vitamin D, how much vitamin K2 should you have? And could you become vitamin K2 toxic? So thanks, but no thanks, um, Alan, because that took me a lot of research. And the reason was, I don't think the question's really been well researched, if at all. So I found some studies saying, I just, when you take a vitamin D supplement with vitamin K2, for every thousand international units of vitamin D, vitamin D there's about 90 um, uh, micrograms of K2. So that's sort of the standard um, ratio. I've seen studies talking about 400 micrograms of K2. And I've seen people saying that probably up to one milligram of K2 is okay. So my suggestion is if you're taking 5,000 to 10,000 international units per day of the vitamin D, you're probably okay to take the K2 in that standard ratio. You might recall I talked about the Coimbra protocol for multiple sclerosis, and that was using mega, mega high doses. 100,000, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, it could be as high as that. I suspect you might want to be limiting the K2 in that situation. But, Alan, there's no science around that, so I can't answer your question any better than what I've just so done. So Alan broke the science, did he? He broke me, Alan, um, <laughs> but, but I do appreciate the question and I've spoken to some colleagues that are, uh, are knowledgeable on this topic and they agree that the science hasn't really answered the question. So in terms of keeping it safe, I wouldn't go above that one milligram per day, but I really that's more of an intuitive answer rather than a, a based on science answer. Okay, any more? Uh, yes, yes, there were, and I responded to those by email. So right, okay. um, they were the two I wanted to cover on the show. And um, you're happy to take uh, questions, uh, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Best to go with the email, I think. Um, it's a bit messy with the text. Okay, so let's get on to this week's chat. And I reckon this, and just looking at the stats that you've sent through here, I reckon this is a huge problem, Glenn, uh, and probably only getting worse and bigger. So we're, we're here to talk mental well-being, I, I guess mental health. Do you want to run through some of those stats just to set the scene and, and kick off the chat today? Yeah, so we're, we're talking about mental health or mental well-being. Uh, one of the stats I saw was that a quarter of the world's population will at some point in their life have a significant mental health problem. So you know, 25%, it, it's high. If it doesn't affect you as an individual, it will certainly affect somebody that you know well. At least a couple of billion. Yes. Yes, it will. So so big problem. That's and all of China, but not China. But that, well, they 1.6. It's getting on for yeah, that. That's it's a big, lot of yeah. yeah. It's a big problem. And then at any one time, about 10% of the world's population will have a mental health disorder with anxiety at 3.8%, depression at 3.4%. And then if you add in um, substance abuse, um, the total's up to 13%. So at any one time, there's a lot of people that are affected by a mental health condition. And then it's getting worse. There was a, an IHME, Global Burden of Disease report, that showed that there'd been a 42% decline in mental health. And I'm sorry, I didn't record... The, the time frame that they were talking about. But, you know, it's getting worse. And 67% had experienced an increase in stress levels. 57% uh, were, were experiencing anxiety and 54% emotional exhaustion. So those figures are about half. I, I do apologise for not recording the time frame. But, you know, those are 
those are concerning statistics. This is a problem we do need to be worried about. Yeah, I guess in terms of time frame, they probably haven't been measuring it to that level of detail for that long. So we could probably say in recent times, as you're reading those stats out, I'm thinking, why? Yeah, and that's a fascinating, huge question, and I, I won't delve into that because I think there are multiple contributors, uh, and I sort of wanted to focus on the management today, uh, but I think just you and I together, we could probably rattle off um, quite a lot. One of them that I, I did want to particularly mention is the weather. You know, this, this mm -hmm. seasonal affective disorder or SAD, seasonal affective disorder, this is something that we see in late autumn and winter. Uh, it may be because the sunlight levels are low, but we see more depression in the winter than we do in the summer. And it may relate back to vitamin D. Uh, oh, okay. Be, and I, I wonder if it does. I researched that before I came on, and I can't confirm that um, scientifically, but there are some studies, randomized control trials, that show that if you give vitamin D supplements to people with seasonal affective disorder, uh, some in some studies they improve, in others they don't. But I've certainly used it in people with seasonal affective disorder, and I think it works. So yeah, I guess the weather. I guess with that though, that that you come out of that because the weather changes and it warms up again. The days are longer, and it's there's something about you know bright and sunny. It is like literally feels bright and sunny, doesn't it? So yeah, there's there's yeah. that. The question is, do any of the treatments for any of this actually work? Do they actually help people? Or do we just think they do? And that's really the benefit, maybe. Yeah, and this is a really difficult uh, discussion to have in this, in this format. Uh, and the reason that I say that is that antidepressants, so those are your serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. These are things like fluoxetine or Prozac or... Uh, and there's a whole range of other ones that are quite common. Um, do they actually work? And the answer is, well, I've just been careful what I say here because if there's somebody who has a significant mental health problem and they find that they have significant benefit from those medicines, then please don't stop them. But I'm talking about um, the scientific studies and what do they show? And the answer is that antidepressants possibly don't work. If they do work, their effect is minimal for mild to moderate mental health problems. I'm talking about the stuff that I might see as a GP. I'm not talking about the things that a psychiatrist would see or would require admission to hospital. That's a different um, set of circumstances. But your standard anxiety, standard depression, um, the answer is that maybe they don't work. And for mild depression, if they do work, it's probably no greater than 6% benefit. So for mild depression, there may be a 6% benefit from antidepressants. And that's been even questioned because when you're comparing the antidepressant with placebo, when you use a placebo that mimics the side effects of the medication, it seems to actually negate any benefit from the antidepressant. That's so, interesting. Yeah, so that's called an active placebo. This actually came around in about 2008. Uh, the researcher was Irving Kirsch. And this, I remember this happening, and I was going, I just don't believe that. I don't believe that antidepressants don't work, but the science was convincing. And then there's been meta-analysis and Cochrane reviews which have supported this initial finding. And another factor in here is publication bias. You know, like only positive or mainly studies with positive findings are published and the ones that have a negative finding generally aren't published. So when you do a meta-analysis, you're basically analysing the published studies. When, um, like, uh, Irving Kirsch went back and he actually asked for the unpublished studies and did his meta-analysis on the entirety of the studies, which I think at that time were 48, and found that there was no significant benefit when you included the unpublished data. So you've got publication bias. So my, my conclusion is 
that an antidepressant is not the go-to for mild to moderate mental health problems. And I think we can do much better uh, than a 6% benefit with the things we'll go on to talk about uh, in this talk. I've just got a quick question that active placebo. So let me get that straight. If you have, you take something that isn't the actual drug, but mimics the side effects, does that mean that as far as you're concerned, you are taking the drug because you're getting the side effects that you expect. So therefore, in you, you kind of take on the benefits of what you think the drug has. Is that is that what's going on? Yeah, that's a perfect summary, Paul. Exactly what you said, because when you're in a randomized controlled trial, of course you're going to try and work out if you're taking the medicine or not. And the pills look exactly the same. They've been manufactured to look and taste the same. So if you're getting side effects and they're the expected side effects that you were told about, you kind of know that you're on the active drug. If you get no side effects because it's the placebo, you kind of know that you aren't. So the clever way of minimising the placebo effect is that you put something into the placebo that mimics the side effects. And when you do that, according to this Cochrane review, there was actually no difference between the two. That's really interesting. Mm. It really is. Okay, so... What's going, what do we know about, uh, at, at your level of, of dealing with these things, what do we know about um, what this medication is supposed to be doing? What chemicals uh, are at work here? Do you want to kind of move yeah. into that territory now? Yeah, so what we've been talking about is serotonin, you know, serotonin, the happiness molecule. And what these medications do is they stop the enzymes which break down the serotonin, which will result in higher levels of serotonin in the in the brain. And if serotonin is what makes us happy and we've got more serotonin, then we should feel happier. That's the whole logic of the antidepressants. Uh, and that actually brings into question the whole serotonin hypothesis because if the antidepressants don't work, the whole serotonin hypothesis has to be re-examined and when you do that, I think it really is quite questionable that depression and anxiety can be as simply explained as low levels of serotonin. And I fact, think that's probably not the case. It's probably far more complicated than that. But there's probably a molecule that's more important than serotonin. It's glutamate. And glutamate is pushed up by stress and trauma. So stress and trauma, trauma pushes up um, glutamate and it's a brain toxin. You know, so I think we're starting to get into a better hypothesis here. And then you go, so what's the medicine to get rid of glutamate? And the answer is there is none. But that doesn't mean that there's no treatments that work. It's just that they're not medication-based treatments. These are highly effective treatments that can lower glutamate and they are lifestyle interventions. You know, so the cynic in me says, why are we not hearing so much about glutamate? Is it because there's no medication to fix it? Is that why we're not hearing about glutamate? And, and its um, friend, the yin and yang of glutamate, is GABA. So GABA is sort of the break. So we can push down glutamate and increase GABA um, by these lifestyle interventions, which are highly effective. Um, when you say stress... What, what level of stress? Because everyone's got a bit of stress. Just daily living throws that at you. Even if you're doing well and you don't have that, you know, like those fundamental, like where's the next dollar coming from and where, where is my next meal? Um, and, and people's lifestyles, you know, they're pretty, well, not that hard compared to historical. So what, what sort of stress are we talking about? What level of stress triggers these things? Just curious to know. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a fantastic, absolutely fantastic question. And I, I don't think it's the level. I think it's the duration. Now, so if we go back to our caveman and cavewoman friends and imagine uh, what their life was like, they um, walked out of the cave, the saber-toothed tigers there, you get a sudden massive stress response, oh, which yeah. is beneficial because you want yeah. all the blood to go your muscles, you want your brain to work and your pupils to To dilate. run back into the cave as fast as possible. No, um, 
Now, what I would do is is dramatically kill the tiger. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Then I would run in and skite about it. That's that would have been my response. But it's all over in 30 seconds. You either killed the tiger, you got eaten, you ran back into the cave, but whatever action you took, it's over in 30 seconds. Yeah. That's that's what we're designed to handle. What we're not designed to handle is this low-grade, constant, ongoing, dramatic stress, which is what our modern lives are. You know, so I think that's the issue. It's the duration. And I think that that sudden stress is actually a reset. It's like a reboot. You know, I think that's actually good for us. Chronic, <laughs> chronic sustained stress pushes up glutamate, lowers GABA, it's bad for us. And if, particularly if that's overlain on early childhood trauma or intergenerational trauma or a significant trauma in the past, then our responses to chronic stress are exaggerated. And I think that's probably where some of the truth and your question about why are we seeing worsening mental health statistics is I think we are seeing chronic stress overlain on on these traumas in the, from the past. So we're sort of, we can benefit from a nasty fright in a way, as long as it's short and sharp, it's over quickly. We're not worrying about it for months on end or traumatized by it for that long. Short and sharp, a bit of a reset seems to work for us still. And, and what I'm going to do, that, that's a wonderful segue into my first point, cold water immersion. Oh, is, right. Cold water immersion is a treatment for um, depression and anxiety. And uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Wim Hof, the Iceman. I think I might have seen him. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've seen video of, of Putin dipping into an ice bath as well, but I'm familiar with, with, with yeah. it being a thing, yeah. You would have, you might have seen pictures of him sitting in the lotus position on an iceberg, um, you know, just wearing a pair of shorts. That's that's really, and and the point is that that short, sharp, cold stress is is beneficial because it's short and sharp. So cold water immersion is a treatment, and I'm not necessarily suggesting you sit on an iceberg naked. Um, Good luck I, for anyone around here. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm looking, I'm staring out at Lake Taupo at the moment, and um, I'm not particularly interested in going for a swim at the moment, but you might just contemplate turning the shower onto uncomfortably cold at the end of the shower for perhaps 30 seconds or a minute. That's going to shock the body, and then the reset after that is going to bring you back to a lower stress level. So, so, so does it need to have an element of shock? It has to be uncomfortable. Right. You know, that it has, yeah, it, um, shock might be too strong a word, but yeah, okay. unpleasant, uncomfortable, you don't like it. Um, just like you don't like the saber-toothed tiger, you wish it wasn't there, but you still have to deal with it. Could you get into the chest freezer in the garage for a few minutes? Would that do it? Well, my, um, my good friend Grant Schofield um, actually has exactly that. He has an ice bath, which is a freezer. Um, and last time I went to visit him, he invited me to go in, and I said, look, Grant, I'd rather have poor mental health than get into that thing. But he's been doing it regularly and and notices huge benefit. You just reminded me, I used to go out and do a lot of running in the winter around the coast of Wellington before when I used to live here, and I got to the point where I really like going out in southerly storms, and I guess the wind chill would have been mm, one or two degrees, you know, in those mm -hmm. situations, spray coming all over the place. And people thought I was mad, and I was mad at first. But I used to come back from those, and not too long afterwards, I used to feel the best I've ever felt. Yet I had been, of course, when you're running, you're sort of balancing your heat slightly, but it's still cold. But I was always surprised at how great I felt after that. Is that is that sort of maybe that effect? Absolutely. But... You've segued me into point number two. Um, thank you very much. Is, is, is exercise. Um, exercise in whatever form has been demonstrated to have an antidepressant effect of 15%. So if you recall, I talked about SSRIs at 6%. 
uh, exercise at 15%, it's two and a half times better than our mainstay of treatment. So why are we prescribing Prozac and not prescribing exercise? And then as you've just described, when you combine things, cold plus exercise, you get a cumulative effect. So you can add the cold, I don't know what percentage benefit that is, should we guess at 5%? You know, we're now gone 15, we're at 20% benefit. We're sort of four times better than Prozac already. So, you know, why are we not prescribing that? And that's what I'm about. I'm about prescribing these complementary therapies or adjunctive therapies like exercise and cold water immersion um, for the cumulative effect. And you're talking with your runner's high, you're talking about endorphins, and this is the cannabinoid system. Um, and you've probably had people on uh, the program already talking about medical cannabinoids um, or medical cannabis. Not, not so, yet, but I'm sure we will, and maybe it could even be you. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So those are endorphins. So the runner's high um, is the chemicals which are produced by the exercise, and they are antidepressants. So you know, excellent exercise. And people say, does it matter what exercise I do? Um, I would ask people, you know, experiment with it and find out which gives them the best high. But running or cycling or brisk walking, you know, those are things which are, are, have been shown to have definite benefit. This is another wow situation for me and I'm sure for the listeners, where just simple things that it's so easy to do it's like they've been hijacked, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the alternative going on those numbers, nowhere near as good. You're mm -hmm. always a slave to it, let's say, and it's so easy. I mean, after this, I could get, go out and walk 8Ks, no problem. It doesn't cost anything. I can listen to stuff going. It's so easy to do. Why, why do you think we ignore the obvious? It's because they're simple, they're cheap, they're accessible, they're not marketed by a pharmaceutical company. Uh, there's no money to be made in it. And so why would it be promoted? You know, that's, that's the point. It's not going to be promoted by industry. It needs to be promoted by public health. You know, this is where the public health messaging needs to fall because we've got pharmaceutical industries uh, with their profit-generated model, they will market the medications. We need public health, government agencies to be marketing these simple, inexpensive, effective treatments like cold water immersion, like exercise, and we'll go on now to talk about healthy nutrition. These are effective treatments available to everyone, which won't be promoted by the pharmaceutical industry because they've got their job, which is to promote their products, and, and fair enough, public health and government need to be, and GPs, you know, need to be promoting these effective treatments. I think they, there used to be media health advertising along those lines, not maybe mental health, but, you know, to, to, to eat well uh, and at a simple everyday level. I don't know, decades ago. I know New Zealand and America, I could be wrong, are the only countries that allow prescription medicines to be advertised mainstream. But I don't see any of, I wouldn't even call it alternative marketing, but the sort of stuff that we're talking about being marketed at any sort of level. I see plenty of pharmaceutical advertising, but I don't see the other. So just saying. Hmm. Yeah, and it's certainly something I would be asking for. And, and I think during the, the COVID response, we really missed an opportunity because we could have been talking about healthy nutrition, regular exercise, uh, possibly some supplements. But, you know, those were opportunities and we know that improves your immune system. Uh, we missed that opportunity. Um, so if we're looking at what could we do better in the future, let's make sure that in, to complement the fast food marketing, you know, we also have advertising on TV talking about what a healthy diet looks like. I, I've got a theory on that. Um, I know it's a little just off off uh, task here just for a moment, but, yeah, why wasn't um, um, uh, sensible eating and all those things promoted? And I, th I think it's because the whoever is tasked with that 
and maybe even the government was nervous about fat shaming people. I think um, that could have been something there because you, I mean, is there any delicate way to get around that when you're trying to reduce body mass index and say, be a face? I mean, I might be missing it here, but you know, that obesity is a problem. You know, it's quite, quite confronting in a way. You, yeah. you have to be very careful about how you pitch that message, but it'll, it's also got to get in and be effective. It's, it's a really, it's a really important message and, and it's worth carrying on with this. Like fat shaming is a huge problem. And what we should be talking about is visceral fat or metabolically dangerous fat. So this is the fat you carry around your tummy. Um, and for example, I was doing a health check on somebody and he and I had the same visceral fat. I weigh about 76 kgs and he was weighing 116. Um, but probably, and, and we're the same height, yeah. you know, but probably I'm at the same metabolic risk as he is because it's all about this visceral fat. And the lesson there is don't call somebody or make assumptions about somebody because of their overall weight. You have to base it on the visceral fat. And this idea of toffee, which is thin on the toffee, uh, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, um, that is just as dangerous as carrying or, or more dangerous than carrying your fat on the outside under the skin. So somebody might look obese, but actually be quite healthy compared with somebody who's thin with the, the weight on the tummy, who's unhealthy. So, you know, I don't, until you've done your visceral fat, you're not allowed to poke fingers at people. Yeah, but um, see, just explaining that is, it's quite sort of, well, it's not complex, but it's it's nuanced. You know, it's not just like da or da. So uh, I guess it's all in the skill of, of the messaging. So you've done nutrition. We've talked about no, we're exercise. Gonna do, no, we're going to do. Oh, sorry. We've done exercise. We've done the um, the ice bath. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where, okay, where are we heading now? We're going we're gonna to talk about nutrition. Uh, when, when you listen to me, you'll find that this will be in every topic I talk about because it is just so important. So it's a healthy diet, and we're talking about whole foods that are unprocessed, that are, are low or avoid sugar, and they avoid the inflammatory seed oils. So they, they are avoiding canola oil. They're avoiding vegetable oils. So it's basically what your great-grandmother would have eaten. So think of the Mediterranean diet as the perfect diet, um, but it doesn't contain these highly inflammatory seed oils. So if you have margarine or canola oil in your cupboard, um, go and throw it out, or apparently you can use canola oil as chainsaw oil, so <laughs> you know, take it out yeah. to the garden shed. Is that right? Um, and sugar. Consider sugar to be toxic or poisonous. You know, so... You've got to get rid of the sugar and things that contain sugar. You've got to get rid of these highly inflammatory vegetable oils and you eat whole foods, you know, vegetables, meat, fish, chicken, uh, chickpeas, tofu, whole un unprocessed food, uh, things you've grown in your garden or from the outside of the supermarket. Don't go into those dangerous uh, aisles in the middle. Stay away from those. That's the danger zone. Stick to the outside. And if you just um, picture in your mind going around the supermarket, you know, you've you've probably walked past some nuts and then I know there's um, mushrooms and and then you kind of get to the deli section and then there's the meat and then there's the fish and um, then there's some frozen veggies and then you walk out, you know, and, and then... Miss the rest. Yeah. yeah. Bypass that's, the rest. That's what a healthy diet and that's good for your mental health. Eating healthy is good for your mental health and particularly for brain health because your brain is mainly fat. You don't want to build your brain with toxic fats. You want to build it with healthy traditional fats. Do we know the difference? Has anyone quantified? Because we're adding up the difference effect before. I mean, can we pile percentage figures on top of each other here and, and have something? Or is, is it just something you do? Has it been measured? Before, because again, no. it's so simple. It's just so simple. No, I would, I would have to guess at it. Um, I haven't seen the science on that. 
but I would be guessing it's as good as exercise. Wow. Okay. All right. So we're now up in the 20 plus percent benefit range. Yeah, I reckon we might we might be at 30%. I'm, that's just an intuitive guess. Yeah, but still. And then let's now talk about supplements because this is my summary on supplements. If you are on pretty much a perfect diet like Mediterranean diet, you may not need to take supplements. But if you're on any diet that's restrictive in any way, you know, say you're on a a whole food plant-based diet that's going to be low in iron, it's going to be low in B12. If you're on a keto diet, uh, you might be getting low in certain vitamins because you're excluding fruit. If you're on a calorie-restricted diet, I think you might need to consider supplements. If it's winter and you're not getting vitamin D. So the point I'm making is unless you're pretty much on the perfect diet, I think you have to consider some supplements. And you know, this idea that supplements just make expensive urine, I, I think that's a dramatic oversimplification. I think there's absolutely a role for supplements. If I had to choose between a healthy diet and supplements, I'd go with the healthy diet. If you're in a situation where you can afford some supplements as well, I think it's a good idea. So what would I look at? I would look at some vitamin C. Uh, it's an antioxidant. And we want the antioxidants for the brain. I'd look at some magnesium and B vitamins. They're good stress relief. And our friend we talked about last time, vitamin D, I'd certainly be looking at that um, during the winter time with K2. Um, don't forget that for Ellen. Um, so I think that would be a, a basic winter formula. Oh, and your omega-3s, you know, your omega-3 or fish oils. I'd be looking at that as a basic um, formula for good mental health. But I did want to go on and talk about Julia Rutledge. So Julia Rutledge is a researcher, University of Otago, based in Canterbury. And she's spent about 20 years looking at using high-dose nutrients, uh, particularly in childhood problems like autism, ADHD, behavioural problems and learning disorders. Um, and she's found massive improvements in that area using, um, using supplements that are multi-mineral and multivitamin. The one that um, they particularly used is called Daily Essential Nutrients. It comes from Canada um, and massive improvements. So I love the idea if you're suffering from a mental health disorder of considering using these high-dose supplements over and above what I just talked about earlier. So she's done a wonderful TEDx talk. It's on YouTube, Julia Rucklidge, R-U-C-K Lidge. Um, watch her TED talk. And I've been using these daily essential nutrients in high doses and been getting amazing effects in adults with mental health disorders. So we've, we've imported the daily essential nutrients that she's used in her studies um, from Canada. And, yeah, wonderful effect in in these disorders so to me it's implying that nutritional deficiencies are one of the underlying causes of mental health disorders in some people all right um in the short time we got left anywhere else you want to go yes uh, on this oh i'm seeing okay there's a few other categories you got here in front of me so um let's yeah. go there we got to go with sleep so you know how you got your lymphatic system, which um, moves stuff that's moved out of the blood vessels into the soft tissues, it moves it back into your circulation. The brain's got the same thing, it's called the glymphatic system. And when you sleep, you increase the volume of your glymphatic system four times. So the cerebrospinal fluid washes the brain, washes the brain and washes these toxic proteins out of the brain. So sleep is important. You know, so sleep is an important treatment for mental health disorders. Okay. I'm fascinated at what's going on that you just don't know about. I mean, you're washing your brain while you're asleep. You don't even know it. Yeah, and we can at some point in the future get into the, the details of that, but think of it as um, brainwashing, you know, washing toxins yeah, brain washing. brain while you sleep. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and then being calm. And that can be as simple as taking five deep breaths in and out of your nose. You know, so if you are feeling highly stressed, um, 
five deep breaths in and out of your nose. It can be that simple. You can get a little bit more complex with box breathing, which is breathing in for three seconds, holding your breath for one second, breathing out for three seconds, and then holding it out. You know, that's a slightly more complex. You can get into meditation. You can get into yoga breathing. But as simple as breathing, it lowers the sympathetic nervous system and increases the parasympathetic. And then relationship to community, to family, and to the environment. And this concept of grounding, which is as simple as taking your shoes and socks off and walking around on the grass, it, it probably has impacts that we don't fully understand around um, ionizing energies and, and stuff like that. But yeah, just, just think about when you're getting your sunlight in the middle of the day, taking your shoes and socks off, walking around on the grass or being part of nature, you know, that is a therapy in itself. I ran for four years baref- barefoot. Oh, did 40 you? 40 days a week, yeah, yeah. Barefoot running, wow. Yep. Um, because I had sore calf muscles and a cousin of mine said, oh, run around barefoot for a while, you'll find probably that that'll ease up. He was right. And I liked it so much, I just kept on doing it because the, the feet toughen up pretty quick. You'd be surprised how thick the skin gets and how res- resilient it can be. But you need smooth asphalt city streets. Um, does that count for grounding? Or does it have to no. be like a, an earth surface? No, I think it counts for grounding. And then you've got your cold exposure and you've got your endorphin release. So, you know, you've combined three effective mental health treatments there. Without even realising it. Without even realising. And breathing. You know, running oh, yeah. encourages deep breathing and oxygenation of, of your blood. So that's four. Okay. Do it with a friend. Go for a run with a friend. You've got five. You know, so, and then uh, I just want to make a brief uh, mention of addiction. Um, When we think of addiction, we think of cigarettes, we think of alcohol, we think of drugs. I think we've got to move our concept of addiction a little bit beyond that. And we've got to look at our relationship to television, look at our relationship to social media, and just be cognizant of of our relationship to those things. And are they addictive? Because addictions have a negative impact on mental health. What about, um, you know, having, because this requires some motivation. There, there are these health coaches and, and people around. Is it, does that help having someone like encouraging you and, and, and sort of pushing you along? Like, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Is that a bit over the top? No, 100%. And in most general practices now, we have health improvement practitioners. They're trained in, in this part of counselling which is called ACT, uh, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a form of cognitive behavioural therapy. It's sort of the modern um, talk therapy. And if you were to add that to what we've talked about already, I reckon we're, and again, I'm guessing at percentages, but we're up over 50%. You know, we've we've actually got a very, very effective um, therapy here. And And we won't have time to go into the details of acceptance and commitment therapy, but basically the idea is that our brain generates thoughts and feelings and emotions. We can focus on those or we can watch them pass through our consciousness like like the clouds moving across the sky. Or another one I was reading this morning is imagine a leaf in a river and write the thought or the emotion uh, on the leaf and watch it um, flow down the river. You know, and, and our brain's job is to generate these thoughts and what we choose to focus on um, basically creates our mood. So rather than choosing to focus on any particular thought or feeling or memory or emotion, just watch them pass through our consciousness. That's the main part of this gentle acceptance of our thoughts, feelings and emotions. So that's the acceptance part. Mm. The commitment part is that we identify our values and we commit to behaviours that are consistent with our values. You know, so that's the the second part of it. And, and that's what a coach or a psychologist or a health improvement practitioner in your general practice would be basing or likely to be basing the, the therapy for anxiety and depression around. And 
we could spend a whole session uh, on this, and I've got some case studies, you know, of, of how it looks like. But I think just to mention it, make people aware that it's there, and it's part of this this global approach to mental health, not just this single one-off medication approach, which must be more effective. You know, these collective treatments must work better than a single intervention. Yeah, I go with that. Um, you, when you're just talking about, uh, you know, watching the leaf and my visualisation for that, you just reminded me of that, and I never really thought about it too much, is I imagine I'm in a helicopter and I just go up above everything and look down and go, oh, yeah, that's that, that's that, almost detached, right? Yeah, kind of. perfect. What, what you're actually talking about, if we go into the details of ACT, you're talking about fusion and defusion. So you can become fused or completely absorbed with your thoughts, feelings, memories, or you can do your hover above it, as you've described, and that's you become detached and you observe yourself um, experiencing that thought, feeling, emotion. That that detachment and diffusion, I think, is a really effective tool when you are feeling low or anxious. You know, and, and you might say, I'm observing myself being anxious. Um, this is completely reasonable because I'm going on to do a interview with Paul Brennan and there will be people listening. Um, I hope I don't say anything dumb. You know, that's a reasonable thing to feel a little bit anxious about. Um, I'm observing, I was observing myself being anxious and I went, well, it's good that I'm a little bit anxious. It means I care. It means I've put a bit of time into preparing. You know, if, I think if I wasn't anxious, that would have been abnormal. Yeah. Well, what, a, what an interesting chat, Glenn, i got to say. Um, yeah, I mean, if you can go above 50% benefit, you're, you're well on the way to sorting. I mean, it might still be some niggles, might still be some moments, but you're really on the way to really, in a meaningful way, sort your problem if you've got it or problems, however many you might have. And it's simple, but it takes it takes acting on these things, doesn't it? You can't, and that's the thing with a pill. You can just sit there and you don't really have to engage with anything. You just pop it down and expect a result. It's, it's kind of a cop. It's a bit harsh, but it's a bit of a cop-out compared to the alternative and the benefits of the alternative. Am I being too harsh? I, you, that's a, it's a fantastic thing because you've taken us all the way back to where we started, this definition of health, you know, to, um, to self-manage in the face of the challenges that we're throwing. And what we're talking about here is skills and techniques that we can learn and we can use to self-manage our emotions and our and our thoughts. And there will inevitably be times where we feel down or we feel anxious. We've now got some tools to manage it. The, the old-fashioned way of going to the doctor and asking the doctor to fix you and getting a pill, you know, I don't think that's health. I think that's something different. And what we're talking about here is skills and techniques to improve your health. There are times when you need to ask for help, of course, and and I'm not suggesting that if you are feeling low in mood or you're feeling anxious or, you know, worst case scenario, you're, you're having suicidal thoughts, you must, you must ask for help in those situations. But for these less severe um, expressions of those problems, here are some skills that you can use to self-manage your problem. You know, and, and that's what this is about. That's what these health hacks talks uh, are really about if we drill down. Brilliant. Okay. So next week, um, you know, it, it, this is a tough one because I've been through it, um, the, the whole cancer thing. We're going to talk about cancer. I'm, I'm curious, how do we frame the next chat? I mean, from what angle of of cancer, do you think, and I'm not asking you to make a decision off the top of your head, but I've been thinking about it because I knew before we talked about it before, where are we going to come at that from? Or where, where are you going to come at that from? Do you think at this point anyway? Okay. This, this is how I look at, um, at cancer management. The oncologists are fantastic, awesome, and powerful at what they do. 
what they do, they do really, really well. And they have some highly effective and powerful treatments, you know, surgery, radiotherapy, chemotherapy. They work really, really well. But we can add on top of those some of these things. And what you observe, they're very similar things to what we've talked about today for mental health. We can add on top some specific interventions that will increase the powerfulness of the mainstream therapies and will also um, reduce the side effects um, from radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So I see these as complementary treatments. I definitely don't see them as alternative. You know, I, I, I would never tell somebody not to do a reasonable mainstream treatment, but I will always say, hey, look, we can add some quality things on top of this to improve your outcome. So that's what we can talk about um, next week. And these things are powerful, you know, and we're going to talk again about diet. We'll talk again about exercise and um, some other specific things that we know that are helpful uh, for complementary treatment to cancer. All right. I look forward to it. And um, uh, if people want to get in touch, uh, they know the uh, email address and we'll do our best or Glenn will do his best. Don't put him to too much research. He's a, he's a busy man. So you never know, Glenn, you might learn something. Just, and Paul, just, just before we go, yeah. could I just say um, with a significant mental health problem, please do ask for help. You know, I, I think that right. needs to be where we finish. You know, whether that's asking a family member, whether it's asking a teacher, whether it's asking a health professional, I, I think it's so important that, that we say that. And I hope that nothing we've talked about today, you know, minimises the distress that people feel when they do have a significant problem. You know, they, these are significant concerns. Of course. Um, but what we're hoping we can do is let people know that there are some self-management tools which are effective that you can use as well. Well, hope never hurt anyone. I don't Indeed. think, anyway. All right, well, let's talk next week, and we'll be talking about cancer. In the meantime, that's our health hacks for this week. Thank you, Glenn Davies of ReversalNZ.co.nz, and uh, I look forward to talking again with you next week. Thank you, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.